Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. My guest today, Michael S. Green, is a man with a passion for history, all kinds of history, but particularly the history of the Civil War and Abraham Lincoln. He's the author or editor of three books on those subjects, including Lincoln and the Election of 1860 and Politics and America in Crisis, The Coming of the Civil War. Michael's new book is Lincoln and Native Americans, published by Southern Illinois University Press and available at Amazon and all the usual places. And Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. So this is the first exploration, as I understand it, of Lincoln's relationship with the Native American population in more than four decades. How did you decide that you wanted to go down this route or route? <laughs> I don't know if it is a route or a route. Yeah, I don't know. You know which, which, is it, which is it, route or route, Michael? You should yeah, know I, this stuff. Either as one, long right? as it isn't route or router. <laughs> well, it, it's a combination of things, one of which is that I also do Western history. Now, I've spent some years looking into the idea of doing something on Lincoln and the West, which I have done a bit on and I'm going to do more. And, of course, you tend to think of the Native American population, especially by the 1860s, as being more Western, notwithstanding that, of course, there are indigenous people back east, too. But it also involves this series that it's published in. And it's been well over a decade, but a group of scholars got together, and they wanted to do a series on Lincoln that would be different. And, I mean, how do you do something different on Lincoln already? And their solution was, we need short, readable books, as opposed to those big double-deckers <laughs> right. that uh, give you a hernia. <laughs> so they originally going to call it the Concise Lincoln, and one of them mentioned that to me. And I said, you know, Lincoln was concise. We're the ones who aren't. <laughs> so uh, it's called the Concise Lincoln Library, and uh, the 1860 book that you mentioned was my first book for that series. And they had wanted this subject done, and knowing of my interest in both Lincoln and the West, being way out west here in Nevada, they asked me, and I, I said, yeah, okay. And uh, it was just very interesting. I learned a lot of things I didn't know, and uh, isn't that what it's all about? It so, is, and for those people listening who don't know Michael S. Green, he's an associate professor of history at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, as well as just an all-around good guy, so he knows a lot of stuff. Well, thanks. When you decided to go down this road, this rabbit hole of history, and this has always intrigued me when historians get to work, and without getting into the weeds, how do you research a subject that requires original documents, interviews, etc., about a part of Lincoln's life that many have not focused on in the past? We mentioned earlier, or I mentioned earlier on, that first relationship, that first exploration, and that was four decades ago. Yes, and it depends on the subject and the historian, but... I'm sitting at my desk looking across at my nine-volume collected works of Abraham Lincoln. And I think in that case, the first thing you do is look at that and say, okay, what do you have in there? What did he say? What did he do? And then you read up on your subject, which means trying to get the background in your head, and you make some notes, about Lincoln and this subject. But it also means you have to address this subject. And the way I describe that uh, goes to a story I tell about doing a Nevada history textbook that I taught the subject for many years. And when the semester would begin, you start with the geology and all that. And I would say to students something like, you know, the textbook is really good on this. 
I'm not going to lecture on geology. I'm not going to be redundant. And I sat down to write the textbook, and I thought, oh, I have to learn the geology now. I better read up. I, I have to learn about something I haven't really discussed before. So it also means finding out, well, you're looking at Lincoln and Native Americans, what's going on with Native Americans in that period? So there's a lot of kind of pick and shovel work you do starting off. And as you're doing it, you're noting, okay, there are these papers at this library or this is available online. And truthfully, from when I started doing this kind of work, the Internet has changed everything. Uh, it's made life easier in a lot of ways because you can find so many things online, especially newspapers and books that you might otherwise have had to order. But uh, you also find there is so much information out there now that you're just you're just feeling like you're drowning a bit. <laughs> but, it's a yeah, so, it's a double sword, isn't it, Michael? And that's oh, it sense. is. Yeah, it really is. And by by the time you feel you're ready to write. Uh, you hope that you've looked at all the major stuff. But even then, as you're, as you're writing, I find, I'll be sitting there saying, oh, uh, I'm referring to this place in Kentucky where he lived. I, I should look this up and see what other information there might be. Uh, so you also go down the Internet rabbit hole. And before that, when you looked at newspapers online, you were going down the newspaper rabbit hole. You're staring at your news story and wait a minute, bread was only 38 cents a loaf, huh? <laughs> and in this case, wait a minute, that, that story on it? Wow, hmm, very interesting. So uh, you learn a lot of things you didn't really think you needed to know, and maybe you probably didn't need to know, uh, but they're fun to find out anyway. And when you're looking at newspapers, too, it's almost online because look at all the transportation costs you've saved just by going online, which is the wonderment of technology. But you're looking at virtual microfiche now of newspaper articles written hundreds of years ago. Oh, absolutely. And it is so much easier than reading the original microfilm. There, there was a great historian named Richard Hofstadter who made a pact with himself. He would not read microfilm. He hated it that much. And, and since he, only, he only won two Pulitzer Prizes, so I don't think it hurt him much. But you know, I, I had spent many hours of my life sitting in front of that machine, cranking along, you know, and uh, now to go look at a website or an index online makes life a lot easier, but it's also easier on the eyes. Yeah. Are you able to, when you did that original research, and we'll change topics in a moment, I'm always fascinated by how sure. a, a writer does his research, and every writer is different. Uh, usually an author I talk to has all kinds of different ways that he or she does it. But in your case, are you also, once you have access to a newspaper report from his hometown, are you able to not just not just read it online, but actually save it into a folder? So if you need to go back to it again, you already have it there? Oh, yes. I mean, you can download these things as PDFs or whatever. And I benefit from being at UNLV and having a lot of databases I can work from. But you, you can just click on it. Oh, yes, I want to save this. Oh, yes, I want to save the whole page, which, which may mean sitting there trying to figure out how to make the print you want to read big enough. But that seems like a minor imposition as opposed to having to uh, drive all the way to the middle of diddly squat to find it. <laughs> exactly. What was the most surprising thing you found in your exploration down the rabbit holes, more than one rabbit hole? In terms of looking at Lincoln's relationship with Native Americans, was there one thing that surprised you in terms of your research? The most surprising thing to me happened before he was born. And that sounds strange in the first place. 
Right. But I'll, I'll go ahead with the story. What I wanted to do that was a bit different from the other earlier book on the topic was look at his whole life in connection with Native Americans. Uh, he was in a war called the Black Hawk War in 1832, and that usually comes up. But what else? Well, there is this story about his father and how when his father was about eight years old, there was a nearby tribe who attacked his grandfather's farm and killed Lincoln's grandfather, whose name was Abraham. He was named for his grandfather. And it led to his father, because of the laws of inheritance, basically being kicked out of the house as a teenager and going off to live on his own. And Lincoln would look at this and say, well, gee, if, if that hadn't happened, how might things have turned out? And there's a lot about Lincoln and his relationship with his father. Well, I, I'm in the middle of this project, and I thought, what about his mother? He adored his mother, who died when she was only about 34, and he mourned her for a long time. And I started digging in, and I found out that her mother, that his mother, grew up with a cousin of hers. The family had come from Virginia into the Kentucky area now, the sort of the old Daniel Boone through the wilderness thing uh, that you'd see on TV. And they had gotten through the mountains and into Kentucky without an attack by Native Americans. And Native Americans were upset that people were coming onto their land and taking their land and supplies and all this. And, of course, uh, the new arrivals were not necessarily respectful of Native American tradition. So they were very excited that there had not been an attack on them, so they decided to celebrate. And they didn't bother to put up guards, and while they were celebrating, they were attacked. Murphy's Law. And in the attack, it turned out that they, the Native people kidnapped or took this little girl and killed her mother. Her father chased the party as they were leaving and drowned in the river. And the grandmother was just trying like crazy to get her granddaughter back, wrote to George Washington, who was then president. And there was a treaty negotiated when Washington was president that included the return of captives of Native Americans. So this little girl came back but had no parents. So she lived with her aunt and uncle, who were the parents of Nancy Hanks, later Nancy Hanks Lincoln. Her name was Sarah, and Nancy named her oldest daughter Sarah, and Sarah named her daughter Nancy. It continues. And... Lincoln grew up hearing stories. His father was a great storyteller. His mother could not read, but certainly could talk, and he felt she was very bright. And I'm sure they told family stories. That's what you did to kill time in the 1810s. You couldn't watch the Dish Network or whatever. So Lincoln, I know, had to have heard these things. And what emerges from all that that I find really interesting is that he was not prejudiced in the way that a lot of 19th century people were prejudiced against Native Americans. There was some, I'm not questioning that, but you would not put Lincoln in the same club as, say, Andrew Jackson. And your and assessment, Michael, of Lincoln, it's not polemical or partisan. It is well-balanced in the sense that you can acknowledge elements of his personality and thinking that are what would be part of the wisdom of the day, and yet you also look at the other part of all the things that he did that are separate from that. 
And you know, there's an old joke among those who love him that Lincoln started out perfect and then got better. <laughs> and uh, one of the books in this series was to have been called Lincoln's Mistakes. And the guy who was going to write it finally said, look, I want to be able to set foot in Illinois again. I'm not doing this book. Well, Lincoln made mistakes, and we can name them. There are several. We all do. And I think if you're going to do history, and you're going to do it from the standpoint that the people you're writing about were either perfect or evil, with a few exceptions, uh, Hitler would kind of be in the evil category, for example, you really are not doing your job, in part because you have to follow the resources you get the information you get, and kind of let the chips fall where they may. If I had found a letter somewhere where Lincoln said, I want to murder all Native Americans, uh, then yeah, you have to go with that, and it isn't a nice thing to have to write about. Well, we, we don't have that, and I don't think there's any such letter, but I don't think you're doing your job if you don't follow the sources where they lead you. A quick global question, and it, it's based on what you've just said. Given Looking at history from the lens of today's culture, or part, I would mm -hmm. say, of today's culture, and what they call the quote-unquote cancel culture, would he be looked at as that evil versus perfect person, or would there be more of, if you are, as you are, a historian, you see a more nuanced view, and those of us who read a lot of history mm -hmm. and live a while, we know that nobody's perfect, and therefore, yeah. you know, within the historical period of the time that the person lived, you have to take all of that into consideration. Do you see Lincoln, in a sense, being, I don't want to say canceled, but really uh, denigrated because he wasn't perfect in a lot of ways? I think we do see some of that. And I think that whether you say he's perfect or evil, you're really taking the easy way out. Uh, you are not acknowledging and studying the issues of the time and seeing where he goes off the track or why he's off the track in a particular way. And I'll give you an example of this. I begin this book by saying that Lincoln was responsible for ordering the largest mass execution in American history. And he did. He ordered the execution of 38 Dakota Sioux who engaged in an uprising in Minnesota in 1862. He also ordered the largest mass commutation of death sentences in American history for the same event. They did military trials. They sentenced 303 Dakota to die. Uh, the trials, each one took no more than 15 minutes. And when the general said, I want them all killed, Lincoln said, hold it. And he had some staff look at the trial records. And he told them, I want you to tell me if you find someone who attacked women, and by attack he meant sexually assaulted, or were, I guess I would say, disrespectful to dead bodies. And there were 38 who fit that description, so he commuted all the others. Now, you can look at that and say, how could he allow the execution of those 38? And I do. I say, gee, why would you do that? 
A couple of years later, he was talking with a congressman from Minnesota. And Lincoln was a totally political animal to his toenails. And he said, you know, I notice uh, my majority wasn't as big in Minnesota this time as it was the first time I ran. And the congressman said, well, if you'd ordered them all executed, you would have gotten more votes. And Lincoln replied, I could not hang men for votes. Well, that should make you stop and say to yourself, what is the atmosphere he's in? He got a lot more flack for commuting 265 in the end than ordering the execution of 38. And we can condemn him for ordering the 38 executed. He was an intelligent man. He was a skeptical man. He had reason to be skeptical. But at the same time, I think he did something there that a lot of other leaders of his time would not have done. So that's the point. We we have to evaluate them in their time and not necessarily by saying, well, he's racist. If you had told Abraham Lincoln he was racist, his answer probably would have been, what's a racist? The concept didn't really exist, or the, the word or the idea. We can look at him now and say, if he walked down the street today and talked like that, we'd, we'd be pretty upset with him, and we should be, if he was among us today. By the standards of his time, he could have been better. I think he could have been a lot worse. And most people, unfortunately, I think, were a lot worse. When you were talking about the trials, were they show trials similar to what Stalin did? In other words, you said they were 15 minutes in length for each of the, each of the people. Yeah, and this is interesting because legal historians debate this. Because historically, they didn't even do those kinds of trials for Native Americans. Meaning those trials were closer to justice than previous Native Americans had encountered, but still, by our standards of justice and by the standards of justice of the time, fell short. Show trials, there's an element of that. Uh, There is an element of them saying, we're just going to do this, Uh, we'll try them, sentence them. Uh, You uh, you might say a bit of Judge Roy Bean and the law west of the Pecos going on there. Mm -hmm. So there is some of that. I I don't want to go as far as Stalin, but yeah, there's a bit of the show trial to it, I'd say. Those of us who grew up reading about Lincoln, either in elementary school, junior high, high school, or even college, never thought of him as a political animal per se, but you Mm -hmm. said he was a total political animal. Oh, yeah. If you look at his life, when he comes back from the Black Hawk War, he runs for the state legislature. He's 23 years old. He's moved to New Salem the previous year. He had one year of what we would now call K-12 education. He lived in a lot of isolation, if you think about it, you know, living on a farm in that era. And he immediately jumps in and runs for the legislature. And it turns out he loses. He then wins four terms in the legislature, leaves to start concentrating on running for the House of Representatives, runs for that, wins. There's an agreement that he can't run for re-election. He then runs for the state legislature in 1854, the U.S. Senate in 1855. He makes a bit of a show for vice president at the Republican Convention in 1856, Senate in 1858, President in 1860, President in 1864. He has been running for office a lot of his life, 
And you find in his papers these letters back and forth about, well, how are we going to get those delegates set up? How are we going to fix this convention? How does the vote look in such and such a place? He loved politics. And there's controversy about his marriage, how loving he and Mary were, because they were both difficult people to live with in certain ways. But Mary grew up in a political atmosphere. And if there is one thing that really brought them together, talking about a mutual interest, besides poetry, which they both loved, it was politics. And it's hard for us to conceive now, I think. But in the 19th century, politics was a great social event. This is where you met people. This is how you got to know friends. Uh, You might even meet the love of your life for all you knew. And there was also a, a lot of gamesmanship to it. It was always about serious issues, but they had more fun with it back then, too. And so he really was into politics. And there are these examples of him where in the 1860 election, for example, back then you could not run for president in the sense that he didn't go out and campaign. And he was really suffering because he was used to going out and working the crowd. So he was a retail politician. And a very good one. Mm Mm-hmm. And a very good speaker, with a high squeaky voice, high-pitched anyway, and yet he captured audiences with his sincerity, and he knew how to project that voice. You know, we, we didn't have microphones then. You had to be able to make a speech to a big crowd, and the people in the back should be able to pick up most of what you said. He could do that. And he spent a lot of time on that, and you, you might say... Um, Sliced a lot of ham, to use a term an old friend of mine used to use. They sat around and they cut up things and figured out what was going on. So he liked the the behind-the-scenes stuff, and he liked the retail stuff. Because a lot of politicians today don't like that. They have mass media. They can sit in the studio, cut a commercial, or just do a news conference. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, And there are some today who really do like it and love to get out there. There are others, like you say, who either are that way or have that reputation. And you, know, you think about it today, if you're in Congress, you probably are going home almost every weekend to go to events. Uh, there are a couple of politicians we've had in Nevada where I've said about them, if you needed a fourth for bridge, they were available. <laughs> and, and there are others where they used to say it, it was actually a very distinguished senator from the state of Washington, Henry Jackson. And they used to say if Scoop Jackson gave a fireside chat, the fire would go out. <laughs> he, he was not that good. And that's sort of thing. So uh, it, it does vary. I mean, there, there are people who are great speech makers, people who are just great one-on-one, and some who do both well, and there are some who can't do either, and you wonder how they got lucky. Now, the focus of your book, because it's a very unique focus, or a unique angle, perhaps, is a better term, Mm -hmm. have you received any feedback from any Native Americans that have read it and can see some insight they didn't see before, or the opposite, from people who Mm -hmm. had a certain viewpoint, looked at it, and their their minds were changed? Not so much Native Americans, but, but a couple of people who do Native American history who said, oh, I didn't realize Lincoln thought that way. 
but also where they said, did you think about this? And the answer was, no, I hadn't, because I don't know what you know. That's why I asked your opinion. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. Most books have an acknowledgement section, and some of them are kind of fun, actually. And I gave the manuscript to a couple of different people. A couple of other people, I said, I asked them for advice as I was going along about their specific field. And other times, uh, it, it's a little bit like you're walking down the hallway and you see somebody that, hey, what do you think of this? I oh, have you thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. Okay. And you actually, in some cases, may not even know you're thinking about it, but you are. The comparison I make, there was a story I read, and this is not related to Lincoln and Native Americans, but it was about an old sportscaster named Lindsey Nelson. He was doing a New York Mets game, and they were playing, I think, Atlanta, and the power went out in the stadium. And the Mets had a pitcher named Jerry Kuzman, and Lindsey said, you know, it's a good thing Jerry Kuzman is here. He once worked a summer for the Minnesota Power and Light Company. He could help fix the lights. And, oh, what a great piece of trivia to pull out at that moment. And somebody said, when, when did you find that out? He said, at breakfast with Kuzman nine years ago. Well, and there, he said, there you go. Well, how'd you think of it? He said, I don't know. I don't know where it came from. And that happens at times. You're going along, and you, with a long career in communications, know this. Something pops in there where, oh, yeah, that, that fits. And that, that happens in this case. So talking to others, I pick up things, and they pick up things. You know, I asked you earlier about the most surprising thing you found. Was there one thing that you found that validated what you thought but you hadn't known for sure? Hmm. A couple of things, and I would say one was a, uh, I would say among Lincoln people, a quasi-famous discussion where he talked about his desire to see the West, and he hoped to go to the West someday. And it happened that he was talking with the Speaker of the House at the time, Skylar Colfax, who was about to make a trip out West went through Nevada, in fact. And Colfax and Lincoln were talking, and Lincoln said, oh, tell them their minds are so important, and we count, we have counted on them to finance the union, and he's going on about the importance of the greatness of the West. And you read that, and if you're reading it thinking of Lincoln and the West, you think, oh, yes, he is talking about the development of the West, how important that is, how interested he is, it shows you certain things there. If you read it in the context of Native Americans, you suddenly realize, you know, he's really thinking about that group, they're not an issue to him in that context, which is kind of disappointing. You'd like him to say, by the way, tell them they really ought to be nice to Native Americans out there. You know, it was their land originally. He doesn't say that. And so, you know, it, it kind of validates to me the idea of the future that he envisioned. But then it also validates, yeah, Native Americans were not number one on his priority list, which is also understandable given the circumstances he was in. But you also want him to be a little better. It's hard not to. Uh, and he's not going to be perfect because none of us is, and we talked about that. So that, that I would say, was an example of that. And there are also times where he is talking about wanting to reform the way Native Americans were treated. 
and reformers differed on what to do. There were those who said the reservation system is what we need. We need to do it differently. There were others that get rid of the reservation system. So it isn't entirely clear what he would do, but he would say, no, I want to do something about this. I need to concentrate on these other things right now. And that just adds to the mystery for, I think, anyone who studies the history of this period. What if? What yes. if John Wilkes Booth trips going up the stairs, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, how might things have been different? And we often look at that in the context of a different group of oppressed people, black Americans. What about Native Americans? And that's what you explore in your book, and that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Michael S. Green, author of the new book, Lincoln and Native Americans, published by Southern Illinois University Press and available at Amazon and all the usual places. Michael, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much, Ira. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.